7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In one view, the modern food industry is a triumph of agriculture and globalization. In another, it's an unsustainable, carbon-belching, ecosystem-wrecking mess. We look into technological bids to ease the pressure and how they can be made to work. And following the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, what are the staff of the country's embassies abroad to do? Funds have dried up, but consular services are still in demand. We examine a suddenly very different diplomatic mission. But first... In case you're in the roughly half of humanity that doesn't use Facebook's services, I can tell you that yesterday was a trying day for the other half. Social media giant Facebook and its Instagram and WhatsApp services have been hit by widespread outages. It was the worst outage in 13 years. And for many of those three and a half billion users, it was mayhem. Instagram and Facebook were on Monday from a new campaign of Facebook Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook, a configuration Services are back, mostly, but a big chunk of downtime isn't even the worst thing to happen to Facebook this week. Former employee Francis Hogan has handed over a vast pile of internal documents to The Wall Street Journal. What she has to say and said on CBS's 60 Minutes this weekend isn't pretty. It is subsidizing, it is paying for its profits with our safety. The leaks are as troubling as they are revealing. The company allegedly knows that Instagram fuels body image disorders among teenage girls, that Facebook's algorithm disproportionately amplifies divisive content, that it does, in fact, contribute to election misinformation. Facebook has said that its services do not promote societal polarization, Ms. Hogan has suggested otherwise to American regulators, and later today, she'll take that message to Congress. Facebook had a very bad week, even kind of by the Facebook standards. Ludwig Siegler is The Economist's U.S. technology editor. So there was a whistleblower going public, giving a long interview on, on TV about lots of research, internal research, Facebook research, that looks very bad for the company. Facebook has demonstrated they cannot act independently. Facebook over and over again has shown it chooses profit over safety. There has been an outage of uh, all three main services, WhatsApp, Facebook, uh, Blue, and uh, Instagram, for many hours, I think more than a day even in, in some parts of the world. And now today we have a hearing in the Senate where this whistleblower will testify and uh, will call on lawmakers to regulate Facebook. And what do we know about the, the service outages from yesterday? We don't know a lot. We only know that they're global and that most services are back online. The company itself says it's due to a faulty configuration change. So something went wrong with the network, but that's not saying much. I think it's kind of 
weird that it happened like really literally the day before uh, this whistleblower is supposed to testify. I mean, bad timing for Facebook and perhaps there's more to it than just a faulty configuration change. And, and as for the allegations of the whistleblower, what's going on there? So Frances Hogan, she was a product manager at Facebook in a team that's supposed to fight misinformation and other kind of attacks on elections. And she got disillusioned. Uh, She downloaded a lot of paper from internal systems. And uh, now she is testifying in the Senate. She also talked at uh, CBS 60 Minutes about what she had found in those systems. I'm hoping that this will have had a big enough impact on the world that they get the fortitude and the motivation to actually go put those regulations into place. She'll also talk to parliamentary committees in other countries. So there's one scheduled in London and another one in Brussels with European policymakers. And so the research that she downloaded and, and then shared with the, the Wall Street Journal, what, what's in there? What did these leaks reveal? These leaks revealed a lot of things people who follow Facebook kind of suspected to be the case or which had already been revealed. One major thing was that Facebook's internal research said that 30% of teenage girls Facebook had surveyed said that when they felt bad about their buddies, using Facebook and Instagram made them feel worse. So basically, internal research at Facebook was saying that our services are bad for teenage girls, but they didn't really do anything about it. And so the principal revelation here is is about that body consciousness issue? Another research leak was about the fact that there's a kind of two-tier justice within Facebook. VIPs, celebrities get a different treatment when it comes to things they say on Facebook and Instagram. So they, they have much more freedom than your average Facebook user, Instagram user. Another thing she revealed was the fact that, as I said, she was part of the civic integrity team to protect elections, which was then dissolved right before the uh, January 6th riots in D.C. And here, too, her criticism is that actually we were just a fig leaf. We did our job and then kind of they got rid of us and see what happened after that. So implication being Facebook is not doing enough to fight the spread of what's called the big lie about the American elections that they're rigged and got stolen by whoever. So essentially Facebook's effect on civic discourse, on the way young women feel about themselves are are not what the company has been projecting. I mean, what has Facebook said about all of these leaks? So the interesting thing is that this time around, Facebook has reacted somewhat differently than during previous crises, like Cambridge Analytica. Back then, they apologized and said, okay, we we need to do more. Uh, Sorry about that. Perhaps we moved too fast and broke a few things. We'll do better in the future. This time, they've been much more pushing back against the accusations. Nick Clegg has become the main spokesperson. And Clegg spoke to CNN to defend Facebook's action. The psychological, anthropological tendency to compare yourself to others and sometimes therefore feeling worse about yourselves is not something that we're going to change. What we can change is our products. That's why, for instance, we've announced that we're going to give parents of teens new optional controls so they can supervise what their teens are doing. What he conveniently forgets, of course, is that Facebook makes money with advertising and advertising needs to increase engagement, as they call it. Engagement meaning kind of time spent on the side. And so they do have algorithms that actually amplify certain types of content. There have been down the years lots of, of seemingly outrageous revelations about Facebook that, that haven't really changed things very much. How damaging do you think this set of leaks really is? It certainly doesn't help. Facebook has two other problems. And one is it's actually weaker than these crises make it appear. It's permanently trying to find new users because there's new social media sites coming up, TikTok, for instance, and and Snap to some extent. And they are kind of competing with Facebook quite strongly. So Facebook has to rejuvenate its user base. For instance, that's the whole story about creating a kid's version of Instagram. 
But that also shows that it's a company that needs to find new users. It's not as strong as people think. And the big danger for Facebook, of course, is that it becomes irrelevant. Social networks benefit from these uh, network effects. The more users they have, the more users they attract. And Facebook, now with, I think, 3 billion monthly users worldwide, is the prime example. But this type of network effect can go backwards, so become negative. And we may be at the cusp of that starting to happen. So this crisis may perhaps mark peak Facebook and that things are going backwards from now on. And for Facebook to survive, it has to almost create new businesses, new networks. And perhaps at some time it will jettison the old Facebook and it will look completely different as a company. So how do you think regulators in America and elsewhere will, will deal with these allegations that Facebook is, is sometimes a knowingly bad actor? I think it makes regulations somewhat more likely, but not a lot, because it doesn't change the problem that's stymied regulation in the U.S., Congress is just blocked on these issues. And as long as you don't get a coalition, let's say, of Democrats and right-wing Republicans that say, we, we want to go after those big tech companies, and this is the way we go after them, not much will happen. Of course, besides these political barriers, is what do you actually want to do? It's not like regulating alcohol or drugs to say you can't use them or you can only have a certain percentage of alcohol in, in a bottle of wine. It's not that easy. Are you going to say, okay... It's not possible for the algorithm to do X or to amplify a certain type of content. What content? How do you define it? Can the algorithm actually recognize that content? So it gets really, really, really tricky. And I so far have not seen a good proposal to do this. So it's a very tricky question. Ludwig, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Within a few kilometers of my house, I can get an American steak or an Argentinian one or that prized Japanese stuff. It's never been a better time to be a foodie. And as the world's agricultural output makes its way from one corner of the globe to another, more people have access to it. With all that variety, though, come plenty of downsides, from climate impacts to shrinking biodiversity. New technologies are coming to bear on these problems, but consumers are still to be convinced. Food is sort of a microcosm of what humans do to the planet. Tom Standage is a deputy editor of The Economist. It's incredibly globalised. You can eat food from all over the place. It's also intervening in the carbon and the nitrogen cycle, so it sort of shows you humans' ability to transform the planet for good and for ill. We really are what we eat. And what about the for ill part? What is the cost of all of that diversity? Well, for one thing, food production accounts for about 30% of carbon dioxide emissions, so it's very emission intensive. It also uses a lot of land, so about half of all habitable land on Earth is used for food production. And we're also seeing that those impacts are getting worse as Western meat-heavy diets become more prevalent around the world. So there is quite a lot of strain on this system already. And then you've got things like 
climate change, making it harder to farm in particular places. And then right now we have an increase in food prices because of bad weather, because of a swine flu outbreak in China. So this is a very complex interconnected system. So at the moment we're being reminded of just how precarious this all is. And it's not as if we're making things better as we move forward. We're actually storing up trouble for ourselves by doing things like depleting the soils, by relying more and more heavily on chemicals. So there are an awful lot of problems that need to be solved here. And so how are people trying to go about solving them? Well, there's a huge amount of innovation at the moment going on in trying to devise new ways to make food with fewer emissions, with less of an impact generally. The example of this that people are probably most familiar with is the plant-based meat substitutes. That's particularly significant, I think, because beef has this sort of outsized impact. Livestock farming is about three quarters of all the land use in farming, and beef has this much, much higher level of emissions than all other meats. But it's not just these new kinds of burgers. There's new ways of actually creating food. So growing food in bioreactors, 3D printing of steaks, relying on sources of protein that maybe we haven't relied on before, like algae or insects or things like that. Now, insects are not things that people in the West like to eat, but in fact, they are widely eaten elsewhere. So there are all sorts of new avenues that we could be exploring. And then new approaches to farming as well. So farming indoors, using vertical farming systems, using much more efficient means of delivering nutrients directly to crops. There are lots of people exploring that as well. And we don't quite know whether the energy economics of all that add up. But the main thing to highlight is that there is an enormous amount of work being devoted to finding more sustainable ways to produce food. So clearly a lot of investment, a lot of hope in this. But what about getting it all to market, getting everyone to eat everything that's coming out of it? Well, I think that's the big challenge for all of these new ways of making food and these new foods, which is that historically we know that people are really quite conservative about what they eat and they can be sceptical and not want to eat things. And this isn't really surprising because there are such deep links between food and culture. Uh, Many religions have quite strict rules about what you can and can't eat. And we also know that people are generally sceptical when a new food comes along. They may say, well, you know, I haven't seen this before. Should I really be eating it? And we saw this, for example, in the 17th century when the great and the good in Europe were trying to get people to eat more potatoes, a wonder crop that had arrived from the new world. And people said, well, hang on a minute, potatoes aren't in the Bible. Are you sure we should be eating them. So there was this encouragement by the well-to-do and the scientists to get people to eat potatoes, but but they really didn't want to eat them. And then more recently, we see other examples of scepticism about new kinds of food, most famously the scepticism that European countries have towards genetically modified crops. Many European countries still ban the cultivation and the sale of GMOs. And so it's really part of the same story, which is, you know, people didn't used to do this in the past, so are you sure we should be doing it now? So is that the biggest problem here, essentially, at the consumer end of this? I think it is. I think there is very clearly a yuck factor. If you ask people in the West to eat insects, they'll go, oh, I'm not eating that. Maybe you can get them to eat them by saying that there's insect-derived protein in something like a a pasta sauce, so you don't actually have to see the legs of the the cricket or whatever it is that you're eating. But if you can emphasise the benefits, which is this would be more sustainable potentially, it could address problems with growing food prices, it promises to obviously involve much less cruelty because you're not killing animals to make these things. In some cases, you take a few cells from them and grow them in a vat. So it's it's real animal cells. It's just um, hasn't involved killing any animals to do it. So I think if you emphasize the benefits, then it may be possible to overcome some of these reservations that people are likely to have and indeed already do have about new kinds of food. And I suppose people did eventually take to eating potatoes, for example. They did. And the invention of the French fry no doubt helped. But actually, another thing that helped with potatoes was that there were widespread food shortages 
a bunch of famines and wars in the late 18th century that meant that people had no choice but to try potatoes. And then they discovered that they could be delicious. And so if you look more closely at a lot of the food traditions that we have, they turn out not to be as deeply founded as you might think. We imagine that tomatoes and polenta have been a part of the Italian diet since time immemorial. But both tomatoes and polenta come from the New World and they're relatively recent introductions. They weren't known to the Romans or to Dante, for example. Similarly, a lot of Asian cuisine relies on chilies, which we imagine have always been there. But chilies, again, are a crop from the New World and they spread incredibly quickly. And now it's sort of hard to imagine Thai food without chilies. But actually, again, it's a relatively recent change. So this does suggest that things can and do change. Another example is caffeinated drinks, which you know many people today can't imagine living without. They were only introduced into Europe in the 17th century. Britons only became obsessed with tea in the 18th century. So new traditions can and do emerge. And I think these new technologies provide us all with opportunities to create delicious and more sustainable new food traditions. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. For more on the environmental impact of what you eat, check out our new sister podcast on climate change to a lesser degree. In this week's episode, our U.S. digital editor, John Fasman, gets a taste of lab-grown meat and speaks to Ethan Brown, the founder of Beyond Meat, a company producing plant-based alternatives. I think that the pioneers were thinking about climate, but I think in the main, people weren't, right? So us, our approach here is we have to create a product that people desire more than they desire animal protein because we're not going to get there through you know philosophy or through um, moralizing i think people are drawn to something that's going to make them feel better is going to taste great and if they can do something good for the world while they're doing that it's a win for everybody look for to a lesser degree wherever cruelty-free podcasts are sustainably produced It was one of the issues discussed in Qatar today. The world is working out how to deal with the Taliban. The Taliban have begun trying to represent Afghanistan on the international stage, without much success so far. We will not be recognising the Taliban, but we do see the need to be able to have direct engagement, otherwise we can't... Many officials are reluctant to engage with the fundamentalist group, which seized control of the country over a month ago but few are as resistant as Afghan embassy workers abroad. I will never work for a terrorist organization. Of course we cannot work with such a government. Who have rejected Taliban attempts to establish ties, which raises a question. What to do when you run a diplomatic mission for a government that no longer exists? So I went to the Afghan embassy in London and things looked pretty normal. Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. Afghan embassies are still stamping documents. They're still issuing birth certificates and visas. But obviously some things have changed. And in these embassies, what is the the relationship with the Taliban, the, the, the now government of Afghanistan? So most Afghan diplomats are loyal to the old government. Some of them hold out hope that the war against the Taliban isn't over yet. Others are just trying to help Afghans with paperwork for as long as they can. But one sign of their loyalty is that the flags outside of Afghan embassies across the world are uh, the old tricolor flag rather than the Taliban's black and white one. And a member of the Taliban's new government tried to set up a video call with the Afghan ambassadors abroad, but most of them declined. So the channels of communication are pretty limited. But those embassies were funded by that now defunct Afghan government. I mean, how, how are they keeping the lights on? 
A lot of embassies are just relying on the fees they charge for consular services. For example, it costs 20 pounds to get a birth certificate issued at the Afghan embassy in London, but that barely covers the bills, even in countries with large Afghan populations. So they're saving money where they can. They're extending old passports instead of issuing new ones. A lot of staff have been laid off and the staff that are still working, uh, most of them are not being paid. So why stay open then under, under those conditions? Well, host countries, for the most part, are in no rush to recognize the Taliban. If they're going to do that, they're probably going to try and get some sort of concessions out of them. Um, and they want consular services for their Afghan expats and refugees. Members of the Taliban are not particularly skilled in the bureaucratic day-to-day uh, running of the embassy, so their services are still needed. But they're getting a bit more desperate when it comes to money. But what about the host countries? Can they help these embassies out financially? No, I don't think they can. And it's actually really interesting. So there are precedents for this. In 1940, the Soviet Union annexed uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And the U.S. didn't recognize the Soviet government in those countries. So for 50 years, those legations, which is like an embassy, but lower level, remained running in America. Uh, They might start fundraising, which is something that they've talked about. So, so how is this going to play out, though? This doesn't sound sustainable. What happens when desperation becomes destitution? Will the Taliban be forced to get those bureaucratic skills? Well, the last time the Taliban were in power in the 1990s, only three countries recognized their government. Right now, no countries have. But the Taliban do control more territory now than they used to, so things could shift. Some of the Afghan diplomats I've talked to are lining up new jobs in case their countries recognize the Taliban or they just don't have enough money to keep working without pay. But almost none of them want to return to an Afghanistan that is controlled by the Taliban. So for now, most host countries are encouraging the embassies to stay open under the old government. Thanks very much for joining us, Elise. Jason, thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.